Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornatal, back with you, coming from the Brooklyn Bunker once again. Happy to be back with you on this show. Sean Tugel on vacation this week, but we are joined by uh, two special co-hosts. One, you've heard him an awful lot on this show and other shows on the In the Money Media Network. He's our guy. He's on the planet Texas. He's the people's champion. Jonathan Kinchin, what's up, my friend? What's going on, PTF? Uh, it's getting close to Breeders' Cup season. Uh, kind of one of those fun times where we start seeing these uh, these stallions get built. And uh, and, and also, uh, broodmare value goes up quite a bit, I think. Just, I'd imagine that uh, Beholder was already going to be a broodmare despite her, uh, what, third uh, Breeders' Cup uh, performance where she, where, she, where she won. But uh, it, uh, it's always a fun time. That was a fait accompli long ago before that amazing final run at the Breeders' Cup. And that's a little bit of foreshadowing there, JK. I like what you did there mentioning Beholder. As for the Breeders' Cup, we're going to be having some special content regarding it, some fun announcements coming up for this show and other shows on the In The Money media network as we get closer to the big event, which is uh, looming boldly on the horizon. See what I did there? And in Sean Tugel's absence, we're bringing in another friend of the program we've had him as a guest several times over on the in the money players podcast but he's actually making his debut on in the ring from black type thoroughbreds it's jake ballas jake how are you today everything's good pete thanks for having me on the houston astros are the best team in baseball (laughs) lsu football is arguably maybe tied with alabama is the best team in football and and now we got the Breeders' Cup coming on, coming up shortly. So it's a it's a great time of year to to be a sports and racing fan. What what about the Houston Texans and the and the uh, Houston Cougars? I mean, their quarterback doesn't even want to be there. Yeah, that's that, that's a different uh, topic we can dis- discuss on another day. I think it's uh, they found a loophole in this whole red shirting deal. I I don't agree with it personally. Texans are two and one. We'll we'll probably go to the AFC championship versus the Patriots and see what happens. <laughs> my podcast has been, my podcast has been hijacked. You know, there's about 7 million other podcasts we can talk about. Uh, we could talk about football, college and pro. We'll leave that discussion for one of them, but it is, you do get a sense of, uh, of Jake's priorities when it comes to Houston sports. But first and foremost, uh, he's a racing man, Jake, what's been going on over uh, at black type thoroughbreds, any exciting news, to report on that front for us before we bring in our special guest for today. Well, hopefully we're going to get a get a runner here at uh, Churchill uh, and or New York with two of our two-year-olds. Uh, one two-year-old has kind of disappointed us, and we have two unraced two-year-olds <clears throat> that are both training, both working. Uh, one of them is Southerner, and hopefully he'll get a race here at, uh, at Churchill and the other filly is up in smoke, a filly we bought out of Maryland. I got her back from the sale. She was a little sore. We sent her to Fairy Hill. I just gave her 30 to 45 days off, got her back going, and she had her first work back last week and will work again later this week up at Saratoga. So hopefully uh, later in the, in the fall, early winter, we'll have a couple two-year-old debut and hopefully have a little luck with them. 
Jake, not only an industry veteran on the bloodstock side, but also a horse player. I always introduce JK as the people's champion. Jake, from what I hear, I should be introducing you as the king of the Empire Six. Has your good luck with that bet and betting in particular carried over from the Saratoga meet to Belmont this fall? I really haven't played Belmont. I took a break from Saratoga. Uh, you know, handicapping Saratoga, it was, it was easier this year as far as five days a week, which was nice. Uh, but after Saratoga, I kind of take a little bit of a break, uh, just, to, uh, just to freshen up a little bit. Uh, I know this weekend I'll, a church will have some nice races, so I'll, I'll probably dive into that a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, I, I caught a lot of flack for playing that Empire Sticks. But in all fairness, I came up ahead on the meat in it. Uh I thought it was a fun bet. I understand the, the you know, horse players thinking it's a terrible, uh, terrible bet uh, based on the takeout, et cetera. But uh, I did get into it a little bit. I had a lot of luck with it. So I kept, uh, I kept playing it. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Well, that makes sense, actually. And there is something to be said for the idea of game selection when it comes to wagering. But that's a conversation for the other show. I think now we should get to our guest. And now I'd like to welcome to the show the stallion manager for Spendthrift Farm, Mark Toothaker. Mark, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for letting me join you all this morning. I'm going to start you out with uh, sort of our greatest hits question. I know a lot of industry people listen to the show, a lot of people who are looking to get more involved in the breeding and sales industry. And I've heard that hearing stories of successful people in the business and how they got started can be very inspiring. I want to talk to you about how you got your start in the horse business, Mark. Where did it all begin? Well, like so many people from Arkansas, you know, we were all drawn down to Oakland at some point or another. And and that was definitely the case with me. My dad uh, finished up uh, basketball season, and my dad would go to the races every Saturday with a bunch of his buddies, and, and I kept bugging him to, for a chance to go. And he was like, Mark, you know, you're, you're only 15. You know, you're not old enough to get in. And I said, oh, Dad, I, I, they're not going to say anything. I'm tall. And, and so he, he finally relented, and, and so off I went to Oakland and, walked in the door and a friend of his that was the sheriff there in Crawford County in Arkansas, he said, Mark, he said, you need to bet the daily double. And I said, well, what's that? And at the time that was the only bet they had outside of win place and show back in those days at Oakland. And uh, he says, well, you just, you go up there, take $2 and tell the teller that you want a $2 daily double your age, one in five. So I went up there, handed them my $2 one in five came in and uh, paid $375, and I've been ruined ever since. <laughs> That's fantastic stuff and, and definitely has in common a lot of the horse player origin stories. There's typically an older relative involved who brings them to the venue, and there's almost always that early success story, and I love the detail with which you remember yours. At what point did you take your interest in betting on horses and wanting to be at the racetrack and say, Hey, this is something I might want to do with my life. Well, when I uh, finished high school, I, Louisiana tech had a great equine program back in the day, very similar now to what Arizona has done. And Louisiana tech was probably the first that had it. And unfortunately it didn't uh, keep up pace with, 
with what Louisville has done over at UVL and, and what Arizona has done with their programs. But they had a great program at the time, and Keith DeSormo was there as as well as uh, Tom McCrocklin and and uh, Britt Wadsworth and, you know, still quite a few people that I see around uh, uh, Randy Gallette of uh, Twin Creeks Racing was, was down in Ruston at that time. So we were uh, a lot of people I still see in the industry from time to time. Uh, went to school there and, and uh, after that found my way onto the racetrack. I, my first job was with uh, Joe Kenny and I worked for Joe until he and Charlesy went through a divorce and at the time, he turned the horses over to Danny Pites, and, and uh, owners quickly started leaving, and I was kind of the low man on the on the totem pole at the time. And so uh, I went to work for uh, Wayne Lucas, and great experience of, of being around so many good horses there during the 80s. It was a, a thrill, and uh, wound up uh, assistant trainer, trained on my own for a while, and I quickly figured out as a trainer that, my uh, my desire and livelihood probably in the horse business was going to have to go in another direction besides me being a trainer. And uh, I had a lot of fun and, and won a few races, but uh, found my way over onto the uh, farm side of the business after that. And and from there, uh, had a farm in Arkansas that, and uh, had some horses for a gentleman named Alan Poindexter. And Alan wanted to buy a farm in Kentucky and and asked me if I would come up and run it, and, and that got me to the bluegrass. And it wasn't long after that I met Mr. Hughes when he bought Spencer in 04, and we uh, hit it off from the beginning and uh, sold horses for Spencer. And uh, one day he approached me about just coming over here full-time at the farm, and I've and, uh, been here ever since. And it's uh, changed my life. Uh, been a, it's just been uh, such an education to work for a guy that uh, like Mr. Hughes that, just thinks outside the box and always challenges you on a daily basis to be better and and to uh, figure out ways of doing it that maybe somebody else hadn't thought about. Always a key in business, and I want to ask you more about that, but I want to go back right now to talk about that 80s experience mm-hmm. working for D. Wayne Lucas, who obviously has this very famous coaching tree, if you will, of uh, trainers who came up under him and have gone on to have just all kinds of tremendous success in the game. Is there one lesson, thinking back to your time working with Dwayne Lucas, that you really took to heart when it came to the horse business? Well, I think just the biggest thing with him is just organization. Uh, no matter you know, whether it was him and, and, a, and a tremendous work ethic, you know, Wayne would always be the first one to the barn, and we would start at five and you know, I can never recall ever beating him to the barn. And, you know, my first experience there was uh, I was already at Belmont with Joe. And so when when uh, when I had to move on uh, from from there, uh, you know, I was I had a chance to be with Jeff, uh, his son uh, there in, at Belmont in the beginning. And then they were moving a string for the first time to have a full string at Oakland. And of course, that's, you know, I'm from Arkansas, wanted to get back home and uh, Jeff told me, he said, look, you're going to love being there. Uh, Randy Bradshaw is, is going to be the assistant there. And, and, of course, along with with uh, Randy was Dallas Stewart. And Dallas was getting on so many horses. And he kind of stayed around the Midwest mostly. So, you know, the thing I took from, from all of those guys, from Jeff and from Randy and, and then from Dallas, uh, and, and, you know, of course, Todd is the absolute – example of it is just the organization being able to run a big stable but knowing what each horse is 
you know, where they're pointing and, and where they're at on their training chart and, and you know, uh, physically, you know, how they're doing. It's just a, it was a, a, an organizational just dream, you know, on how they did everything. And I took so much of that away from it. And then, you know, just the, you know, the work ethic being there early at the barn and paying attention and, and uh, you know, just outworking your competition as well. So, you know, to see Wayne still on that pony at, in his 80s and, still doing his passion i mean it just it's it's what drives you know drives me to you know he's he's just at it every day i I wake up and feel like hey you know you need to go out here and do your job mark we obviously want to this is jonathan kinchin we obviously want to talk a little bit about some of your exciting young stallions uh but we probably should uh should talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the room and that's into mischief who um i i remember seeing first uh, most people might remember Vijack and Golden Sense. I remember a horse uh, that had my name, a JK's Mischief. I remember that one. You know, I don't think he yeah, really yeah. was Golden Sense. <laughs> he wasn't much. But he wasn't what Golden Sense and uh, Vijack turned out to be. But tell us a little bit about Into Mischief. Obviously, uh, shoplifted running this week. We saw Kofefi last weekend. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, about Into Mischief. What makes him such a good stallion, and uh, what you guys are looking forward to coming up with him. Well, he's just, you know, he's amazing. He's the gift that just keeps on giving, as we say. And, you know, really from the beginning, we probably did everything wrong on trying to uh, uh, market him. You know, no one obviously knew what they had at the time. Uh, he had, had been injured most of his three-year-old year after winning a grade one and two. And he came back and, you know, was very impressive in the Breeders' Cup undercard and, and Mr. Hughes wanted to retire him to go ahead and start the farm. And, of course, all of us were, you know, let's run him another year, run him another year. And he he was very adamant on going ahead and getting him to the farm. And, you know, even though he was a grade one winner, he he's, uh, you know, he's not an absolute uh, uh, show horse. You know, he's a rugged horse. He's got, you know, a lot of bone, a big hip to him, but he's a, he's a rugged made horse. And, uh, and so – so many people are breeding for the market and, and, you know, they're just trying to breed to these, you know, big, pretty stallions. And so he didn't get a huge book. He only, only had 42 foals in his first crop, but, you know, from that he had two in the Kentucky Derby and golden sense and Vijack. And, and then of course, from a much smaller crop the next year of about 32 foals, he had Vickers in trouble in the Derby. And so from there, you know, the numbers started growing and, you know, the stuff he, you know, went from 7,500 and just started climbing the ladder up and, and the runners just come, kept coming and kept coming. And, you know, the thing about them is they're, they're, they're very sound horses. They're very durable horses and whatever that it factor is on trying to find the wire first, they seem to have it. And as far as a stallion goes, you know, he has been a unbelievable horse for us and that, you know, he's, he's just a, definitely a horse that you just don't see every day in the shed. He's, he uh he's about 30 seconds to a minute uh in the shed each time and and uh he's a one jump stallion so he's not jumping up and down on the mares he's on the mare one time and gets his job done and he's back to the stall and whether you breed him one time or three times that day or if you have to do an additional fourth mare because he does breed a, a pretty big book of mares you know the one thing you know with him is that there's a the chances are he's going to get them in fold the first time and you're not going to have to see those mares again i mean he bred a book of 240 mares this year and he had a 90 96 percent in foal rate so it's, it's just unheard of and uh he uh 
he's just a he's a breeze different air, no doubt about it. Hey Mark, this is Jake. I got a you're talking about breeding to the market. Um, what commercial breeders do. Y'all have a first year side coming up next year in 2020 with Matoli, who I think is one of the most fascinating, brilliant horses on the racetrack today. <clears throat> but when you go back to talk about breeding to the market, a lot of these commercial breeders, they wanted a horse to win a great stake at two. <clears throat> they want to go further, show speed and distance. Now with Matoli, he didn't win a greatest stake at two. He didn't break his mate until you know early in his three-year-old year. He did win the Met Mile. What is your sales pitch as far as that commercial breeding? Does he have the early speed is what all these commercial breeders want because the buyers, including myself, that's what we're going after. So a big knock is what I've always heard. You want a horse to win a stake at two, blah, blah, blah. What's your counter to that with Matoli? Well, with him, Jake, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be down at, at Oakland when he when he won the Bachelor Stakes and, you know, ran 107 buyer there early in the, the spring of his three-year-old year and had a chance more at that point to talk to uh, our good friend Susan Montoya that, that uh, had had the horse there at the farm for uh, Bill and Korean Halibrod and had a chance to talk to Bill and and. From there, I got the story with Dave McCathin that this horse, you know, was just unbelievable at the two-year-old sale. He um, he basically, you know, ducked out on his gallop out, and so he didn't have uh, uh, the tremendous gallop out time that they look for so much at the two-year-old. But, you know, Bill said that if you went back and really took a chance and broke it down, that he had as, about as good a breeze at the two-year-old sale as, as any horse he could remember, and you know, the horse had a little vet issue behind. I believe he had a little sesamoid or something there behind on the x-rays that bugged some people. But, you know, Bill Halibrod, who's, you know, won over a 1,000 races, and, you know, if there's anybody that knows speed, it's uh, it's Bill. And uh, he just said that he couldn't have been more impressed with this horse. And he had a few little uh, things that, you know, kept him from getting to the races there, Jake, too, but from every indication that we've heard is that, you know, he was as fast as he is right now when he was two and he had all of this ability, but they wanted to give him a little bit of time to see if they could get that x-ray issue to heal up uh, before they got him to the races. And, you know, Steve Asmussen has told me that he goes from pole to pole, you know, this is the fastest horse that I've ever trained. And so when a guy like that's telling you that, you know, then – it gets your attention. And so he was a horse that, you know, we were a little bit worried about Escondrea had been moved out, but, you know, we stood more spirit last year and he went over extremely well. We bred 170 mares to him. And, you know, I know other farms had to think we were crazy to go after another son of Escondrea, but, you know, this horse was just so blazing fast. We had to take a shot. And, and so we were, you know, even the day that we announced him that we, he was coming to stud here, we, uh, you know, Mr. Hughes and Eric ask us, you know, how long do you think it's going to take for, you know, for you guys to, you know, get this horse booked full? And I don't think anybody even come close to saying it would happen in a day. Uh, we, you know, we all thought it <laughs> would take, you know, take a little time to, to grind it out. But we, uh, we announced the horse on a Sunday afternoon. And, and by noon on Monday, we had over 240 requests for seasons for him. So it was just amazing. Uh, we've had a chance to shift back through that and, starting to go through these mares and and uh 
get the final count on you know on what we're going to do with him but uh the demand for him was just unbelievable and and I've had you know Jake I had I've had a couple of our breeders that you know brought up that same point that you brought up and and you know I just I've told them I said you know I know that is exactly the way that we're taught to think but this horse had some things go on that uh you know limited him from being able to do that but believe me he if he would have went straight from the two-year-old cell and not had a in the vet issue and gone to the track, I, I think you very well would have seen, you know, what you're seeing now. He's just he's always been extremely fast. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that one bit. I mean, he he is a brilliant horse. And I just have two other questions. Speaking of mares, 240 that uh, mission bred and 240 requests from Matoli. Just quickly, what is your thinking on the jockey club wanting to limit the breeding number to 140 mares and how do you see how does that correlate in your opinion to these super trainers when some people think that trainers shouldn't have more than x number of horses in my opinion i don't think you should be able to tell a farm they can only breed x number if you can't tell trainers they can only have x number i don't i know they're not apples to apples i just wanted to get your quick opinion on that well, I mean, Jake, we, we just agree in the free market process. And, you know, one of the things that there's, you know, some of the people that are making decisions on this that are on the Jockey Club stewards, you know, they have contracts. Uh, they've either bred to into mischief over the last couple of years or they have mares currently enfolded into mischief or they have already asked for seasons this year for the 2020 season to end mischief. So, you know, the guys that are on that board that are faced with making this decision, you know, as as I've had a chance to talk to several of them, I've said, you know, listen, uh, you know, you know how many mares that we breed within the mischief, and he, not every stallion can do that. I mean, we, he's probably he and Golden Sense, his son, are probably the only two horses on our roster that you could even attempt to try to do that with, uh, because you've got to have a horse that can get them pregnant the first time, and and uh, not have to see those mares again when you're trying to go through and and, and do a book like that. But as I told those guys, I said, you know, you all know how many mares he breeds, but you're still wanting to breed. So why are you now all of a sudden wanting to put a rule into effect, uh, you know, that can change the business? I mean, I just think there's going to be, if they implement this, there are going to be effects that we haven't even thought about. And, you know, one of the things that got brought up by uh, another one of our, you know, loyal breeders that – that's done a lot of stuff overseas he just said you know the japanese are going to be the first one that are going to be so happy because now all of a sudden you know we're going to be restricted on what we can pay for a horse coming off the racetrack and uh you know japan's not you know they can go out there they're already a tough competitor of ours if they want to go after something you know they 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 breed huge books bigger books than what you know the one we do within the mischief over in japan and so you know we're going to see a lot of our horses you know top stallion prospects are going to wind up going overseas you know where they're not limited um i just think that there's so few stallions that can breed that many that uh just let it let the free market process play out breeders are extremely smart uh you know they're they're not going to breed to a horse uh that they feel like you know they can't get a return on their investment and i i just think let free market play out I think it's going to really hurt some people uh, on that have top stallion prospects coming off of the track, uh, which in turn will hurt the prices for these top well-bred yearlings at the sales. Uh, 
you know, we were negotiating on, you know, one of the top horses out there in the handicap division. And, and I know that several of us were, and, and I had a chance to, at Keeneland to see Bob Baffert that trains the horse. And I'm like, Bob, you know, you realize that, you know, what this jockey club is doing to you, you know, you're wanting this King's ransom worth of money, uh, for your horse. And now, you know, with these limits, you realize every one of us were stretching, doing our numbers based on being able to breed 200 mares, you know, at least the first couple of years to be able to get anywhere close to making the numbers work on your horse. And now all of a sudden, if we're limited to 140, you know, you've just taken a big haircut on your horse on what it's worth. And uh, I just I just think, let, let, let the free market play out. We're not saturated here in this country like they are maybe in in some other spots and you know we have 26 27 stallions here at our farm we offer a lot of variety so i don't buy the fact that it's affecting the gene pool and and i just i think anytime you get messing with free market you know there's going to be uh consequences that haven't been thought about i think you already answered this question mark and i really appreciate your perspective on this but i was just going to ask you if you thought that the inbreeding a possibility was a concern. One of the reasons the jockey club cited for this, this limit. No. We'd love to see the report. Uh, we've not seen anything that, that you can hang your hat on. You know, there's been speculation, but we've seen plenty of speculation from the other side. I just, I just believe as many mares as we've got and, and, you know, you're factoring in these stallions, but you know, every time there's a mating, you've got to figure the mare in there as well. And so I, I I do not see this in any way shrinking the gene pool down and and uh, and causing us any problem with inbreeding and you know they as as uh, we've had several people tell us you know with, that you know when Spencer was over here and Mr Hughes was doing his share the upside and and doing some of his other programs and and you all were breeding ten and fifteen thousand dollar stallions uh, nobody cared what you did. But when you're taking 240 mares out of the mare population in Kentucky at $150,000 each, you're starting to step on the toes of some people that uh, are in high places in this business. And I think this is nothing more than, um, you know, some of the blue bloods are uh, feeling like that, you know, we're taking taking a, a, a great deal of number of mares, you know, that they have gotten in the past. So, you know, my personal opinion, but I think it has something to do with it. You mentioned y'all have 27 stallions over there. One stallion I want to talk about who's meant a lot to me that most of on the show may not may not care too much about, but that's race day. <laughs> and uh, you know, I bought race day out of a out of a three year old sale, and we got lucky with him. And then you guys bought him from us, and uh, he's in his third year now. Is that right? Fourth year. Uh, he's got two year olds, uh, so this will be uh, be well, his, he bred his fourth fourth group this year. Right. So we'll be moving on to year five this next year. Would you just would you just talk a little bit about race day and uh, what's going on with him and how you how he compares to uh, you know some of these other first year sires? Well, Jake, I mean, I, I I tell you, you know, you know the story on this, and as we've talked in the past, but. You know, I made a trip down to Oakland down there to go down for Rebel Day, and, and uh, I had two offers in my pocket. I was meeting uh, Mr. Zayat there to uh, to make an offer on American Pharaoh, and uh, it had already been sold, you know, unbeknownst to us. It had been kept real quiet, and, and I had another offer in my pocket, pocket uh, for Taperture. 
who was running down there on that card. And so I had two uh, quick meetings there. Mr. Zob was quick to tell me, you know, that Pharaoh was already done and, and uh, you know, he wasn't available and, and met with uh, Winchells and uh, David Fisk, and they were very nice, and uh, they uh, they just said, we're not interested right now at this point on doing anything. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, here I am at Oakland. I've got to call Mr. Cheese up, who's very result-oriented, and tell him, well, I took two offers down here, and I've still got both of them in my pocket. And so I was a little bit distraught in, uh, that we hadn't gotten anywhere, and then I run into you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you told me, you know, we got a horse running in the Razorback here in a little bit. And I, I look, look, and it's a son of Tappet. And I'm like, well, we don't have a son of Tappet. Let's see what happens. And, you know, the horse wins. And you're kind enough to take me out to the winter circle with you. And and uh, and that started the process on us, you know, being able to get with you and Matt Shera and, and uh, acquire race day. And then we just went to work trying to, you know, get him as many mares as we could. He, he finished out his career in style there on the Breeders' Cup undercard, winning the Fayette Stakes, and and so we uh, breeders were interested in him. He was a beautiful son of Tappet out of a more than ready mare, and and uh, we got him a decent book there his first year, and and followed that up with another good book this year. And so you sit back and wait for him to hit the track, and and now you know, lo and behold, you know, here we are, uh, September. 25th and uh we've got four stakes winners already for race day out of 22 starters it's just an absolutely amazing start i mean into mischief didn't get off the start that race day is off to so we're all just over here couldn't be more excited uh that the beginning he's off to i think he's a horse that's flying very much under the radar out there for folks uh but this is a horse that had a lot of speed and he could carry it two turns um great-minded horse. I mean, we've had some tappets that you couldn't even get to the starting gate. Uh, and in fact, uh, this weekend, you know, was was proof of that. Uh, we had a Jimmy Creed that was very impressive that won a stake out at uh, Parks at King Creed that run 111 buyer out yep. there. And, and he's the first foal of a tappet mare that John Sheriff's trained for us that got scratched in the post parade twice because she was such a nut. <laughs> and uh, and race day has just been absolutely the best-minded tappet. He's never turned a hair since he's been here at the farm. And I think he's passing that on to his progeny. You know, they've got this the tappet ability, but they've, they've got the great mind to be able to go along with it. So, you know, we've got him priced at seventy five hundred bucks. Uh, we hope that climbs the ladder just like in the mischief is done. But you know, we feel like right now somebody wanting to, to breed to a young son of Tappet off to an unbelievable start. We think he's one of the best values in Kentucky and in, in, uh, really anywhere at that price. Here in about fifteen minutes after we let you go, we're gonna talk about these two year old stakes on Friday out at Santa Anita and uh, I'm likely going to pick uh, a son of Into Mischief and Shoplifted, uh, who, who I thought was impressive in his races up in Saratoga. But obviously, he's one that I, I'd imagine we'll see in the starting gate uh, after he wins the American Fair. We'll see him in the starting gate at the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. What other horses are you guys looking forward to that impact your stallions that will be running um, in the Breeders' Cup this year? Obviously, Kofefi. Is there any other ones that I'm missing that, I, that I'm not paying well, attention I mean, to? Well, I mean, it's it's going to be a heck of a battle in the uh, Philly Mare Sprint. And, I, you know, I feel like it's be one of our two stallions is is got the best shot certainly with Kofefi representing into mischief, but 
you know, Carlos Martin has done an unbelievable job with Come Dancing, and she's extremely talented. And we just looked at the sheet numbers here for this last weekend, and and um, both of those fillies ran a two the other day. And so, you know, they both have a lot of talent. Uh, we feel very good about that. We're looking forward to that. Uh, you know, we hope Matoli can go on and, and have a great performance in the in the Breeders' Cup Mile or the Breeders' Cup Sprint, whichever direction that Steve decides to go there. Uh, obviously, a horse like King Creed that ran big this weekend. I don't know what Hollendorfer's plans are with him, if he'll wheel back into the, the Breeders' Cup or wait on the Malibu. But, you know, the Malibu is, you know, certainly a horse that, you know, Instagram is pointing toward. And, you know, we're still not sure exactly – how everything's going to shake out on Omaha Beach. That'll be one of our future stallions, but he'll be back in action not this weekend, the following weekend, and and then we'll see what sets a course up uh, either for the Breeders' Cup Mile or, uh, you know, maybe back out here for the Clark at Churchill or the Cigar Mile or the Malibu at the end of the year. There's a lot of moving parts there with Richard. And, you know, we just let Richard do what Richard does, and he'll he'll map out a map out a plan, but – you know, a lot of young two-year-olds uh, by Into Mischief, you know, are out there uh, that could certainly show up in the uh, in the Breeders' Cup uh, Juvenile Philly or, or the Colt Division. Uh, so, you know, Vino Rosso, who's also going to be one of our uh, incoming stallions, he's training, Todd said, training better than he's ever trained. He's had three sub-minute five-eighths works here, and he's coming into the Jockey Club Gold Cup in great shape. We look for him to run big on Saturday, and then you know, we think he's got a, a tremendous chance to, to uh, go back out to California on a track that he's already won on, won a grade one during the summer, and, and uh, we think he has a great chance to, to walk away with the Breeders' Cup Classic this year. Excellent update. i got to let you get out of here. I've kept you longer than I said I was going to, but can't do so without talking a bit about Beholder and just looking for any memories, any updates you might have on that great race mare, one of my favorites to ever peer through a bridle. Well, I had a chance the other day. We had some folks out to the farm, and, of course, anybody that comes out, they always will ask, can we go see Beholder? And so she's not too far from the office, and, you know, we'll load people up and, and run out there and feed her some carrots. But, you know, she's an amazing mare. I mean, she's a, you know, once-in-a-lifetime uh, type Philly on the racetrack and and you know the only horse in in horse racing history to to win a grade one at, at two three four five and six so her name will forever be etched in the uh in the memories of that and you know i guess to go out you know the way she finished up her career with you know uh a race for the ages against songbird and that was just one that you know you can't even describe the feeling that you had uh, when she got her nose down on the line and, and, you know, the race that she ran in the Pacific Classic when she demolished the boys. And, you know, so many good memories. And, you know, we've got a uh, a yearling here by her, a colt uh, that is uh, by Uncle Mo. And uh, she is, uh, she's got a uh, filly this year uh, by Curlin. And then Joe Allen wanted to swap a couple of seasons. So he swapped us a couple of war fronts for a couple of into mischief. So, uh, she's currently in fall to, uh, to walk on at this time. So, you know, what a blessing she's been. And her, her half-sister goes out there at the yearling sale that's a half to her and into mischief, brings $8.2 million and is the high, highest-selling horse out there. Just the, uh, the family just keeps getting keeps going on and on and on. But uh, So we hope Beholder 
you know, she's not had any trouble. She's always gotten in foal on one cover. She's had, uh, you know, great foaling so far. And, you know, she's just been a, been a great filly off the track for us. And now we just hope that, you know, she can throw a runner that uh, can even be close to what her abilities were. We would just be thrilled to death. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. That was a great visit, and I hope to get to meet you uh, in real life soon and, and get a chance to say hello and thank you in person. Really appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you all so much for having me on the show. We really appreciate it. Geez, that was a lot of fun, guys. <laughs> so amazing perspective and great to get to relive some of those beholder memories for me. It's one of those things where, obviously, I was a huge fan. I knew about all those accomplishments. But then when you get a little distance from it and you look back, it's just that much more mind-blowing, wouldn't you say, JK? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. She was, I mean, she was phenomenal. And the craziest part about it is I can't believe she lost three races in 2016. I, I, I can't even come to remember how in the world that happened. I do kind of remember, I think it was some paceless races, a filly by the name of Pacific Wind she ran into a couple times and just some weird situations. But, man, she was phenomenal. What a stat. I didn't. I guess I've heard that before, but I don't remember hearing it. Uh, Which one? Wing of grade one, two, three, four, five, and six. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Remarkable. Stuff. Not to mention those three grade ones were, you know, I mean, three of those grade ones were were Breeders' Cup races. So it wasn't like she was winning some, you know, five horse field where no one showed up because they were dodging her. She was winning races on uh, races on the highest stage. J.K., you mentioned the, the three losses that she in 2016. You meant to say stellar wind, not Pacific wind. But secondly, stellar oh, you're, wind. You're right. It's a big difference. <laughs> there's, there's quite a difference between those two. Anyways, stellar wind beat her twice that year. And the other horse that beat her was California Crumb. So she only lost to two horses that year. Not a lot of shame in that. Um, and, JK, we're wow. just going to leave that. That was funny, so I'm just going to leave in the misnaming, if you don't mind. <laughs> Oh, of course. Okay, of course. you know I have the power to edit these things, but we're just gonna we're just gonna leave it, um, guys. We've been on uh, for longer than we said, so I wanna as much as I do enjoy talking about uh, Beholder and reflecting on that really fun visit with Mark Toothaker. I think we should talk about these stakes races on Friday at Santa Anita. For those who don't know. Santa Anita moving a little bit away from the supercard concept. All the big stakes are not just on Saturday. They're now spread out over opening weekend. And it begins on Friday with a pair of grade ones for two-year-olds. The first one goes as race number five. It's the Chandelier. And, uh, JK, we're going to start with you on this one. What do you think is going to happen on Santa Anita on Friday afternoon? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to put the wig on. I just, I really didn't have anything more creative here. I, I'm going to get a little bit more creative in the in the American Pharaoh, but Bast just looks to be uh, looks to be the tough one in here. She ran well um, down at Del Mar. Ran big figures in both of those races. She's a five hundred thousand dollar yearling purchase. She worked last time with Mohawk, uh, who's who was uh, is one of Baffert's best two year old uh, Colts that we've heard about for a long time uh, for the SF Starlight. Uh, situation that they have out there and I'm excited I, I'm really genuinely excited that Johnny V's going to come out and uh, ride these horses for Baffert and these two grade ones and so I think that'll be a lot of fun Johnny's been riding absolutely remarkable in the last uh, I'd say somewhere in the middle of Saratoga he woke up and said hey you guys forgot 
that I'm a Hall of Famer, and let me go ahead and remind you, and he's been doing that ever since. Bast has that ability to sit and finish. Looks very, very tough. Jake, do you have anything more creative in the chandelier? No, I think it goes through Baffert. I mean, the first loss, he got beat by that $850,000 big beast filly, uh, and then she turned the tables on her. I don't see anything else in there. I mean, Pete Miller's horse uh, runs back even the broker made him for 62.5. I don't know what happened in the the when she got beat by Bast, uh, but I, I think it goes through Johnny V, which is interesting. Johnny's out there. I need to get the scoop on that. Uh, Surprise! I know Drayden. You know, Drayden got hurt, and then um, Mike Smith. I don't know why he's not on the Philly. Uh, he's riding for Dan Ward. So it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled because uh, Johnny wins this race and American Pharaoh. He's going to have two really nice uh, breeder cup, breeders cup mounts for Baffert. Yeah, I think I, I think what happened here, if I'm get, if I if this is not information, this is just a guess. I would guess that with Drayden getting hurt, I would think that with Starlight's involvement with shoplifted i'm mean, not a shoplifted excuse me with uh eight rings uh the relationship that uh that that you know johnny velasquez has with with jack wolf i would imagine that there's an idea to get johnny out there to ride eight rings with the question marks around drayden and then mike smith obviously being on uh, a horse that he won by 14 links on i'd imagine he had a hard time getting off of that one and i, I would think that somewhere uh, along those lines uh double o Double uh, O's phone rang, and it was uh, it was Bob Baffert. What, what, what does Double O have? Double O being Johnny's agent, Angel Cordero, as in Double O Seven. <laughs> what does he call Bob? I think it's in his name is Beaufort. Beaufort. <laughs> in, 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 in his phone, it's, the spelling was incorrect the first time he put it in his phone, and he has never changed it. <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> That's amazing. B- back up and explain that connection. The Baffert connection yes well Baffert and Cordero have been close for a long time Johnny's you know written for for Bob um but yeah, I don't every you know I'll be at Cordero at dinner and his phone would ring and it or he'll try to call Bob and his phone says Beaufort <laughs> which is just kind of just kind of funny that no one's no one's checked that and changed it for him yet <laughs> uh, you know I'd be I'd be interested if if Baffert gave Johnny the call for a Breeders' Cup assuming they run well here or if it's a one-off deal feels like Uh, it would be a package deal with the breeders cup wouldn't you think i would think so uh my guess is yeah it'd be a package deal i don't yeah i know there's probably not a lot going on at belmont friday as far as graded stakes so uh but i would imagine johnny wouldn't go out there just to ride one day and say okay someone else ride no, he's going to be the favorite in two grade ones with horses that if they win, they'll have a pretty good shot at being eh, not favored, but they'll be uh, they'll be a bet for sure in the Breeders' Cup uh, juvenile race. And Johnny, I, I don't believe Johnny has anything on the East Coast right now uh, as far as a two-year-old that's a serious contender in the Breeders' Cup. I might be wrong, but off the top of my head, I can't think of one. Let's move on to the other one of these grade ones we've been alluding to. Race number eight is the grade one American Pharaoh. JK, we'll keep it with you. Will you continue to wear the silver wig and get ready to do your Baffert dance for eight rings? Or are you interested in some of the other big names in here? Some very well-regarded cults showing up. 
Yeah, this is a tricky race. I, I think there's probably four four horses that I think uh, deserve some some conversation, some attention. Obviously, down the rail, American Theorem, uh, the son of American Pharaoh. Uh, that would be poetic if he were to win uh, this Grade One American Pharaoh um, Express Train. This kind of is one of those deals we saw it with Gormley. Um, it was one of the reasons that kind of helped us to find uh, our one of our podcast favorites, the Visadero, was when a trainer does something that a trainer doesn't normally do. John Sheriffs doesn't win races by 14 lengths. I don't care what race it is, and they don't wire, open up by seven, and draw off by 14. I don't care how suspect the field is. So I think there's some something that needs to be considered about express train there that Sheriffs has that Mike Smith decided to ride. And then also the horse that I'm going to end up picking is shoplifted. Um, I remember immediately after uh, the hopeful, uh, when, when Asmussen was doing his best Chad Brown impersonation, running <laughs> one, two, three in a grade one, right after the race, he did a rundown quickly of all of his horses. And I remember he said, Joel Rosario said that shoplifted was spinning his wheels in that last race. And he ran really well on that sloppy racetrack. And I think that he could run even better here. He's going to have a lot of pace to close into. He's going to get two turns for the first time. And Joel Rosario can be extremely dangerous coming from off the pace. And he's going to be a much more attractive price than a horse like Eight Rings. I agree with you, JK. I had that note from the post-race interview. We talked about it on the show. The race should be run to suit. I'm not sure ultimately how far Shoplifted wants to go, but I think the mile and a 16th will be within the scope. Jake Ballas, who are you picking in the American Pharaoh? I like the rail horse, American Theorem. It was interesting. I'm, I'm assuming eight rings and American Theorem will probably be the first two choices, and both of them are having equipment changes. Blinkers off on American Theorem, blinkers on on eight rings. Baffert's 38, 40% or something, blinkers on. Uh, so I would probably have to take Baffert over uh, Papa Jeromo with the equipment switch. One horse I'm interested in is Storm the Court. People keep talking about Garth and how nice that horse is. This horse beat Garth at Del Mar, came back and was unfortunate uh, to have the rail when eight rings ducked in and dropped that rider. I think Storm the Court's going to run a big race. And yeah, shoplifted. It was in the mud. You take, uh, you take that, uh, you know, he did run well in the mud. Uh, I'm going to go probably with uh, Baffert and Storm the Court. Uh, but, but I think any of those four could, uh, could win that race. So eight rings and storm the court for Jake. J.K. and I going to try to get shoplifted in, though certainly respect eight rings. I would imagine, despite the incident last time, eight rings is going to be a solid favorite in here. J.K., agree or disagree? Yeah, it's Baffert. Um, and, and, and so eight rings, obviously, uh, people are going to continue to bet eight rings off of that performance down at Del Mar, not the one where he uh, took a left turn at the gap and, and, and lost Drayton Van Dyke, but the one August 4th where he broke his maiden. Um, he's, he's just, you know, he's going to be bet in this spot. They're going to expect him to run. Well, I expect him to run well, don't get me wrong, but he's going to be half the price, if not a third of the price, in my opinion, that shoplifted will be shoplifted coming in from out of town and being, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of things about shoplifted I think will be ignored. Um, and, and, and so those are the two that I want from a value standpoint, I'd land on shoplifted. If, uh, if I was, um, 
if I had to pick a winner so I could eat dinner tonight, I would pick eight rings. But uh, from a value standpoint, I'd pick shoplifting. And, you know, fortunately, we have these bets, the exacta and trifecta. No reason we can't have tickets with eight rings, saver tickets with eight rings on top of shoplifted and maybe eight rings, some contenders and shoplifted in third even, depending on how the race ends up being run. So lots of different ways to go there. One thing I will say, one thing I will say is I would keep an eye on Santa Anita's racetrack. This is some in-depth handicapping stuff for for our our uh, our uh, pedigree podcast show, but when Santa Anita had the issues they were having, one of the things that they did is they started to make that racetrack racetrack extremely deep. So sometimes you would see some weird results of horses that didn't like it or did like it. Um, one of the things that comes with making a racetrack deep and quote unquote more safe, I use the air quotes for more safe is that the rail can sometimes not be ideal in those situations when the racetrack gets more deep. Sometimes the middle of the racetrack can be a little bit more forgiving. Um, and so I worry about American Theorem being down there or eight rings clearing and ending up down there. Now, in eight rings defense, he does have Johnny Velasquez, who's a Hall of Fame rider. And uh, if the rail isn't where you want to be, I'd imagine by the eighth race, he would have identified that and keep eight rings off of it. But it's something to consider. It's an interesting point. And Johnny, I'm looking through the card right now to see what he's riding earlier in the day. It is a situation for me where I would love to see him riding on the undercard and getting that sense personally. But I would imagine, and Jake Ballas, you can speak to this, that with his skill set, he'll be able to to watch other races taking place and, and take note of if there's any kind of bias on the racetrack, I would assume. Have you ever talked to Johnny about a, a belief in bias or paying attention to tracks that he doesn't normally ride? What's your view on this? Yeah. You know, I have. I, uh, I remember Toga this year, I specifically asked him if he thought it was an advantage shipping out of town to ride in undercard races. And he said it was not an advantage or disadvantage to him one uh, at all. Interesting. He does all of his homework and he watches every race very closely. Gotcha. And um, so he, he acts like it doesn't matter. You can ride one race, you can ride nine. It's uh, no advantage at all to ride on the undercard. If he's paying attention to what's going on on the track, he can get the if information he's, he now, needs. I'm talking about, you know, Johnny V. Now, if you're talking about another rider, you know, I don't, I don't know what his response would be, but knowing the homework Johnny does and, and how uh, detail-oriented he is, he'll, he'll know everywhere, you know, what's good, what's bad, et cetera, on the track. Very interesting. It's going to be fun to have these grade one races on a Friday, something a little different, a little more Keeneland-like from Santa Anita. Do you like that, Jake? Do you like spreading the, spreading the wealth a little bit over the weekend instead of just having it all on one day? I do. It gives you something to do on a Friday afternoon. And, um, you know, a lot of times those, those days where it's all cramped in, you're trying to bet this track and racetracks are never coordinated on their post time. So then you, you put in one bet. Now you got to go fire in another without knowing results on one side. And uh, I like it when it's spread out and it, you know, it obviously gives the, you know, Johnny a chance to go over there, come back to Belmont and ride or Churchill or wherever they're, uh, they're, they're riding that, that weekend. Um, I, don't, I don't mind it at all. I enjoy it. 
Yeah, especially when it's a weekend like this where there's so much Breeders' Cup prep work going on. Saturday is such an embarrassment of riches of stakes races. Races like these, it's not like they're going to get lost exactly. They're grade ones, key Breeders' Cup preps, but they do get a little lost on a day when you have you know, 18 stakes races in total, as opposed to being able to really take center stage on the Friday. For me, it's a little bit different. For Woodbine, for example, Woodbine Mile Weekend, I wouldn't mind at all if they had those two, uh, the, the Summer and the Natalma, the Sunday stakes races they run. I wouldn't mind them making it a little bit more of a super card on that Saturday because I feel like they'd kind of own the day. But for me, it's a little bit different on a big weekend when you've got stakes races going from coast to coast. What do you think of that, JK? There's about five or six days I want Super Days on, right? Obviously, the two Breeders' Cup days, I want a Super Day. Oaks and Derby, I want a Super Day. Travers, give me a Super Day. Belmont Day, Super Day. Preakness Weekend, Super Day. Uh, but times like this, it's kind of cool to like have – because, look, the truth of the matter is, no offense to our friends in Santa Anita, but if they didn't have big stakes on Friday and it was just full with a bunch of claimers and maidens and, like, you know, first-level allowance races and starters – it's not nearly the draw that it is to get two grade ones on a Friday. Then you come back on Saturday, get some grade ones and come back on Sunday and get a grade one. I like how they spread it out. It's, it, it's not ask it, but it reminds me of how ask it spreads out their situation throughout the week and gives people more of a festival feel. Um, you know, I've even heard a lot of people, I think you had Sean Clancy on that described one of the negatives about, what they do now at Saratoga is, is like it was fun to have a grade one on a Thursday. And I think he said the test used to be run on a Friday. So like, that's kind of cool. And, and I, I, I would think that would be fun, but I also understand why in this day and age, when there's so many different things, pulling betters attention and fans attention, let's cram it all in on one day to make it easier for everyone to consume in one situation. But I don't want to get to that model in every situation. I commend Santa Anita for what they're doing this weekend. And I'd say even in New York, they maybe go a little too far. Travers, I like pretty much just as it is now. I think I used to object to it. I used to view it more that way. Of I loved having the races all the time, but it's just such a it's just such an exciting day, a Midsummer Breeders' Cup. I love that. But I will say Belmont Day, they take it too far. I mean, ha this year having the Brooklyn, the storied Brooklyn, as a walkout race, no, 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 no. Why not there try to go a little bit more of the Ascot route? We've already got, and they've been building those big days of the Thursday and Friday, the Belmont Stakes Festival. Take some of those races that are just absolute afterthoughts, run as the 3rd or the 13th on the Saturday, and spread that out a little bit more. You've already got good stakes happening on that Thursday and Friday. I think the idea of following a little bit more, of maybe just call it a head fake towards an Ascot model and and – Still keeping it as a supercard. You know, maybe you have your six grade ones. I mean, it's going to be one of the best days of racing of the year anyway. But then from there, um, moving things around a little bit, you're still going to get great handle numbers. If that last race is a New York bred first level allowance, then if it's then if it's the Brooklyn, I think at that point, um, I'm no economist, but I, I play one on a podcast from time to time. <laughs> JK, what do you think? Our, uh, our friend Sean Borman, Mike Maloney, Paul Matisse, Craig Mokowski, they're all a little upset with you trying to move to Brooklyn. I think they appreciate having another mile and a half race on Belmont Day to help with the figures. Um, but it doesn't need to be a walkout race. I agree with you. Um, it needs to be a little bit earlier in the day. I'll, I'll pose this last question um, as, as kind of on this topic to kind of wrap it up. But I think one of the biggest races that we've seen get moved that I think 
some traditionalists have a problem with is, are you a Met Mile guy on Belmont Day or are you a Met Mile guy on Memorial Day? I detested it when it was announced. I've come to accept it and even like it where there have been some Belmont days where I was more looking forward to the Met Mile. Um, so my my what's the phrase that the politicians use? My thinking on this has evolved. <laughs> so I but I did not like it at first. I mean, that used to be the centerpiece of Memorial Day weekend. It was a day I would, you know, not do other things to get out there and, and go see. So I get it. It, it. But I think the way that racing is changing, I'm OK with having a tr terrific grade one um, secondary feature, if you will, on a day like Belmonte. I'm okay with that. I take your point about the figure making and the Brooklyn, but they used to just run a nice starter allowance at a mile and a half. I think you could get the same effect for figure makers um, without necessarily putting the Brooklyn there and having the Brooklyn be like the featured race the day before. I think very often, obviously, weather depending, it could be a relevant data point, just to loop back to that for a second. But I, but I do take your point there. Where, where are you on that? Jake Ballas, we haven't heard from you in a while. Where are you on the uh, on the the super cards in in general um and what do you think about the these things jk and i have been bandying back and forth here i don't mind the super card at all i mean i think there's nothing going on that you know that weekend as far as football other sports uh it makes for a, a better card for especially for tv you know with fox news picking up a lot of you know the Saratoga or the entire Saratoga meet, et cetera. It gives a it gives a better card, better stories uh, for viewers to see. And uh, and in all fairness, if there's not a Triple Crown race, a lot of people, you know, they don't dismiss the quote Belmont, but it's not it's not as exciting unless there is a Triple Crown. So when you mix in the the Met Mile in that day, which is a lot more exciting to a lot of people than the Belmont. I think I think uh, I think it's perfectly fine to do it like that. J.K., a closing thought from you on this or any other issue before we let the people go about their days, or actually at least just listen to the next podcast in the queue. I was hanging out uh, in Saratoga one night, and uh, a woman with an American flag shirt on, like an American flag sweater, American flag wristband. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love America. Don't get me wrong, but I was she gonna say, asked where are you going with this, J.K.? When I said I was on. No, I said, I'm on Fox. And she said, oh, you're on Fox News. We love our Fox News. <laughs> and Jake just Jake just put me on Fox News, too. He said Fox News. I don't know. You could oh, – you're, you're, you're politically – I'm in Fox Sports. <laughs> I was, I'd actually made the note to cut that, but I was gonna, now I'm going to leave it in. And, JK, your, your political commentary show, I don't know. Somebody's going to get arrested. That's my prediction. <laughs> no, I, I just would uh, – I would just sit there and – and uh, say the only colors I see are, are brown, bay, and, and, and roan. <laughs> Don't leave out the grays. Don't leave out the grays. All oh, right. Yeah. En enough of that. Enough of this. Thank you so much, Jake Ballas. Great uh, to have you on the show with us today, subbing for Sean Tugel, who will be back next week. Thank you, J.K. Thank you, Mark Toothaker. Most of all, I want to thank all of you for listening. The show's been off to a great start, and the support we've been getting, particularly around Lexington, means a lot to us. This is I love doing all the shows. This show, for me, is the most fun to do. I learn a lot each and every week, and hopefully a lot of you out there are can continue to dig it, too. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>